It's lovely to see you all this morning. Fantastic to see you on this lovely summer's day uh, and reflecting on uh, this wonderful psalm, Psalm 16. Uh, I won't pray as Andy's prayed for us. Uh, you might find it helpful uh, to have that yellow sheet to hand. Uh, that might give you a steer and let you know when we're coming to the end, which I think you'll be happy with. Uh, so I've got a friend, right? I've got a friend. He's quite a keen sportsman. And he is uh, one of these chaps who's got a number of little mantras, little sayings, inspirational quotes, uh, pseudo-bro-science sayings that he likes to uh, spin out. And one of them is, consistency is the essence of progress. So what's he saying there? He's saying that if you really want to get good at something, if you want to achieve your destination, then you have to be consistent, day in, day out. It's got to become part of your life, your daily routine. But my mate, he wasn't the first person to think of this. So here's a Greek philosopher, Aristotle. Excellence is an art won by training and habit. There's one for your fridge. And if this is true for the secular, then it's perhaps also true for our spiritual lives, for the sacred. Uh, so Christian philosopher uh, James K. Smith, he wrote a book recently called You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit. But Smith expands on this slightly, and he says, love is like gravity. And what's he saying? Well, those inward uh, desires that you have, those secret loves, those longings, those daydreams, uh, that um, those go on to motivate your desires and shape your routines and habits, and patterns of behavior, and ultimately determine where you're going to end up. They're going to determine your destiny. Now, I might not agree with everything that Smith says, but it is perhaps true that your desires determine your destiny. And it's on this miktam, this golden truth of David, that Psalm 16 is going to expand on. So I wonder if you'll look down uh, at our first point there. And the psalm starts with an emphatic plea, a prayer for safety by David, verse 1. Keep me safe, O God. And the basis of his request is that he claims to have wholeheartedly depended on God. For in you I take refuge. If desire determines your destiny, then David says that God is his desire. But what is David claiming about himself and his devotion to God? Well, I wonder if you'll look up and just look at the previous psalm, Psalm 15 there, and maybe look at the attributes that describe the person who's wholeheartedly devoted to God. So someone whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from the heart, who does his neighbor no wrong, never has a tiff with his neighbor, who honors those who fear the Lord, even the awkward ones, the less beautiful ones, the bad hygiene ones. And all of this, David is claiming about himself. He is claiming that he is the reality of the picture that Psalm 15 paints, who is never shaken, who can ascend the hill of the Lord and dwell in God's presence. So verse 2 of Psalm 16, David declares his allegiance to the Lord. He submits to God. You, 
are my Lord or Master. He declares God good. Apart from you, I have no good thing. There's no doubting or ambiguity with David here. It's emphatic. So I recently went on this trip to uh, Uganda, and the Ugandans have this great, uh, uh, the Ugandan Christians have this great saying. So I say, I say, God is good, and you go all the time. And then I go, and all the time, and you go, God is good, and that is his nature. That's a great saying. I won't get you to do it. Maybe Andy can bring that in another day. Uh, But if you're anything like me, you'll admit that you don't always get this right. We're happy to call God Lord or Master, but we maybe don't think that he is good. And so we're half-hearted. We don't trust him as much as we should. We think that he doesn't really have our best interests at heart, and we hedge our bets. Or we're happy to call God good, but not master. We want his good gifts, his food, money, power, sex, but we don't want to submit to him as master in using them. And we are like this, but David says he is not, not David. Now look down at verse 3. Look at how David rejoices in the saints, those who have received God's good inheritance, who are in the land. Uh, David is someone who goes to church, and he loves everyone at church. He knows everyone's name. He greets everyone's uh, child by first name. He's interested in them. Uh, So I have a fail-safe barometer for myself of how I'm doing spiritually. I ask myself simply, Do I want to go to church and be with God's people, or can I simply just not be bothered? Am I perhaps more interested in the celebrities that I might meet walking home from church in Hampstead, or at the Christians that I meet in church in Hampstead? Do I treat church perhaps like a social club, only speaking to those whom I like? What are my heart attitudes and desires? and how they're shaping how I treat others around me at church. And in contrast uh, to the saints are those who run after other gods in verse 4. And the word there is perhaps hasten after or lust after other gods. And in David's days, these might have been local deities, small gods with a little g, but could be understood to be anything that detracts the saint from their singular devotion to God, that shapes our desires and habits, that become a secret desire or enclave in our hearts, uh, that might look attractive or innocent in the first instance, but soon enough, as we go more and more into these secret, uh, ungodly desires, the sorrows and troubles seem to pile up, So when you meet a woman who is first pregnant, you might not notice the baby. You might not know that they're pregnant. But wait nine months, and the troubles will pile up, and you'll know they are pregnant. And the baby will come out with much grief and sorrows, and well, not sorrows, great joy, but a lot of of pain. Um, So David is convinced that the lives of those who are divided in devotion or ungodly will lead to great sorrows. These great sorrows will pile up. But rather, David says, that the devotion and desires of the godly are distinct. 
So verse 4 goes on. I will not pour out their libations of blood. Christian worship is distinct and single-minded in awesome reverence for God. I will not or take up the names, their names, on my lips. But as faithful as David in is his longing and desire for and devotion to God, in contrast to those who run after other gods faithlessly and duplicitously, David declares in verse 5 and 6 that God is his inheritance. So in verse 5 we read, Lord, you have assigned me my portion. Now perhaps better translated, my Lord is the measure of my portion and my cup. He is my inheritance. But more than this, David, as the faithful servant, he is content with God as his inheritance. Uh, so one commentator writes, in verse 5 and 6, David uses the language of the promised land to declare that he is content with what God has promised. The words portion, cup, lot, boundary lines, and inheritance hark back to Joshua's distribution of the promised land. So what David is saying, speaking prophetically here, is that the promised land, that land that the Israelites hoped for, a land flowing with milk and honey, of abundant wine, that the Israelites yearned for and strived for, desired passionately, that this land was only a picture of the reality that the people of God have in the Lord. So recently I managed to secure uh, an allotment. Uh, and I've been uh, farming away studiously there, and I've planted raspberries, French climbing beans, sweet beans, broad beans, runner beans, courgettes, Swiss chard, tomatoes, little gem lettuce, rocket, paper lettuce, strawberries, and purple sprouting broccoli. Delicious. Uh, so I left for a couple of weeks, and I came back, and was flowing over with fruit and abundance. I did not know that baby marrows grow up to be proper marrows. They're absolutely enormous. Or pumpkins, huge. But as successful as this allotment has been, it is not a patch on what God promised the Israelites in the promised land. And it's this physical land that God promised that David says is a pale fading picture of what the reality is of having the Lord as an inheritance. So I want to suggest that David is writing this psalm out of a simple sense of awe and wonder of who God is, of how good he is, of how generous he is. You see, David could remember a time when he was disinherited. When pursued by Saul, he said, They have now driven me from my share in the Lord's inheritance and have said, Go serve other gods. But David knows that material disinheritance can be an even greater honor and pointer to the only real security that we have, God. And so we think of the Levites, the priests in the old Israelite nation. They had no inheritance, but God promised them, I am your portion and your inheritance. And we remember verses like 1 Peter 2 or Exodus 19.5. You are a kingdom of priests. We are a royal priesthood. We don't have a physical inheritance, but our inheritance is God, the Lord. And what a blessing. 
I consider everything rubbish that I might gain Jesus. For me to live as Christ, to die is gain. So what about you? You might feel, uh, when you come to church this morning, we all come from various stages and ages in life and different situations. I don't know how the week has treated you. Uh, you might feel absolutely disinherited. Uh, things may be really tough at work. Uh, retrenchment might be on the horizon. You might not know whether you're going to have a job next week. Maybe marriage is really tough at the moment. And you think uh, that you're about to uh, give up on it. Maybe not hang in there. And maybe uh, you and your spouse are struggling to have kids. And it's a real struggle and burden. You so want to have this family, but it's just not coming. Or maybe you did something that you're ashamed of. Uh, a bad, uh, that you, you thought you'd never do, and you don't know how to face your friends and families and your small group at church. Or maybe you're just stuck in a really bad pattern of behavior. Your desire is not for God. You know that, but you'll figure you'll fake it until you make it, until you clean up your act. Maybe you're struggling with, with an eating disorder, maybe pornography or something like that. Maybe, or maybe, alternatively, things are really good, and you're a good Christian. You attend small group. You go to fellowship dinners every week, but you simply have never been in awe and wonder of God. Maybe you were at one time, but you've lost it and have grown cold. David says, flee to God. Run to God. Don't run after little gods to work, to escapism, to your friends, to entertainment, to TV, to dinner and a show. Flee to the Lord, for God is good all the time. The Lord is your delightful inheritance. But nothing the Israelites ever received was as wonderful and as awesome as what you, Christian, enjoy today. But if God is our inheritance, what is it going to look like to have God as our inheritance? So verse 7, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. David praises the Lord for his counsel. He treasures up the words of the Lord in his heart. The Lord doesn't coerce him, but counsels him. Even at night, he goes on, my heart instructs me. On our side, we search our hearts, we struggle. This isn't a paranoid worrying at night over, over, over things that aren't going to uh, produce good, good fruits. But this is a schooling oneself to ask the hard questions, uh, to face the hard facts about our lives and about who we are. Uh, and if you're anything like me, you're the master of self-delusion. But the Lord out of love won't let us off the hook. He's not going to let you get away with it because he loves you. So David declares in verse 8, I have set the Lord before me always, that the Lord alone is the deepest desire of his heart, day in and day out, moment by moment, that the Lord is always at his right hand, that every good gift is from God, Job, house, spouse, children, work, all of them 
gifts are of the Lord's goodness and abundance and kindness. And because David is so wholehearted in his desire for the Lord, he can know with confidence that his prayer for safety in verse 1 is going to be answered. So he says, he will not be shaken. His pure desires determine his destiny. So it's no wonder then that David is filled with gladness, verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad. Everything that is within him, every sinew, every fiber, every muscle rejoices. And my tongue, that's literally my glory, my innards, everything that reflects God within me rejoices. And it's not just his emotions and spiritual welfare that are going to benefit from his wholeheartedness, but his physical body. My body will also rest secure. And so David goes on to paint a picture here of what the path to life is going to look like. So the person who's utterly dependent on God cannot be abandoned to the grave because God is the God of the living and not the dead. And you think of Enoch and Elijah who got carried away by the Lord, who never died. Nor will you let your holy one, that's faithful one or beloved, see decay. Now some commentators translate this as a recovery from sickness, which is wrong. Uh, David is speaking prophetically here. He is predicting that the one who is truly faithful to God, their body will not decompose or decay. And David says this because he's expressing the Hebrew belief that the godly will terminate their journey in the presence of God himself. And that the path of life is not swallowed up by death, but is an escape from death entirely. That this path to life is not some vague, unknown, pie-in-the-sky-when-you-die belief, but it has been known, made known to David, to the psalmist, by God, who is his counsellor and teacher, and who desires that we know him and makes his path into his presence very plain. Now, if desire determines destiny, then the acid test for someone who claims to be wholeheartedly committed to the Lord comes after death. If a person's destiny is life, then if after they die, their body does not decay, then we can conclude that their desire was wholeheartedly for the Lord. But if after they die, their body does rot away, then we can conclude that no matter how pious their words, they were divided in desire and not wholly committed to the Lord. But here is the thing in the psalm. See, David is speaking as a prophet. He is not talking about himself in the psalm, although it's addressed in the first person, but about someone else whose only desire was for God. See, I don't need to tell you about the sad story of David and Bathsheba to show you that David did seek good apart from his God, outside of the Lord, and if David failed, so do we. How about you? How are your odds? Is your desire always for the Lord? Are you, or are you perhaps seeking a good thing outside of God? 
But let me tell you about someone who was wholly committed to the Lord, who was perfectly obedient, who was always perfectly faithful to God. Now, I wonder if you'll turn to Acts chapter 13 on page 1108. And I'll just read it uh, quickly, beginning verse 35 to 39. So it is stated elsewhere that you will not let your Holy One see decay. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep and was buried with his fathers, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law. You see, David had failed the acid test. But where David failed, Jesus didn't. David's body decayed, but Jesus was resurrected by God before his body decayed. In fact, Jesus is the only person who can sing this psalm truthfully. Jesus is the only person who did not fail this test. He is the only person whose desire was wholeheartedly for the Lord. You see, it's very easy to come to church and smile and say the right things, but fail the test. And Jesus could have been a hypocrite. He could have had very fine-sounding arguments But as soon as he was resurrected, at that very moment, you know that he lived a perfect life and that his heart was wholeheartedly for the Lord. So God has made known to us the path of life, and it is through his Son. And as soon as we give up on our hypocrisy, our self-righteousness, and cry out to Jesus, like David, for refuge, then at that very moment, our sins are forgiven and the path to eternal life, to pleasures evermore, are opened up to us. Praise be to Jesus. So if desire determines destiny in conclusion, where is your desire this morning? In what or whom are you placing your trust? Is it in the Lord, through the Son Jesus, who gives life? Was it through the little gods of this age of Hampstead, which will prove ultimately futile. Let me close and pray for us. Father, we, uh, we praise you for your Son, Lord. We know that where we have failed, he has succeeded. We know that he has shown us the path to life uh, where we give up and we trust him simply for our salvation. We thank you so much. Help us to praise you more and more each day as we live in awe and wonder of you. In Jesus' name, amen.